Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. I'm Dan Staten. This is your blue collar, do-it-yourself, self-guided, public land, elk hunting learning curve resource, where we leverage hunting to create more personal development. Our goal is to educate and encourage our listeners to become the best possible version of themselves through hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to themselves. Welcome to the Oak Shea Podcast. I'm Dan, the fitness man. If you're a first-time listener, man, hey, what up? Welcome to the Blue Collar public land elk hunting podcast and it's not just all about elk hunting in fact i'd say it's largely about making yourself the best possible version of yourself through hunting we leverage elk hunting and that creates more discipline and delayed gratification and ultimately we actually become better men better husbands better dads better elk hunters it's a good formula it's a great recipe it's september it's my favorite month of the year no this is not a live live podcast in fact, I probably recorded this a month ago. I am elk hunting as we speak, and I love every bugle. I'm going to take advantage of every morning. Every ounce of energy I have is going to be poured into this month, and I know you're going to do the same. So we're going to interview Dustin Coy out of Washington State. I've never met him in person. Uh, my dad actually referred him to me and said, hey, man, this guy is a dad of like I don't know, a gaggle of kids. I don't even know how many he has. We'll find out on the podcast. And we talk about him going archery elk hunting for the first time. He's killed some elk with a rifle uh, and he's going out of state. And so hopefully some of you can relate to this guy just trying to juggle, I don't know, making money, providing for your family, being an awesome husband first and foremost, and being a great dad and making time for elk hunting. It's, it's a lot in the air, a lot of balls out there, but we are going to get to it. Uh, if you are listening right now, I hope that your chasing bugles are getting ready to just get to where you're getting safely and just know that I appreciate you listening to this podcast. And when you get back, consider sharing this podcast with a good friend or anyone who needs a little kick in the ass. We have online elk shape camp for those that can't come to the live ones. We're going to do at least six live ones next year, Texas, Washington, Oregon, Colorado, Wisconsin, and a couple other to be determined. So if you're not going to make it to a live one, then go online, give you your access, give you all the videos from the two previous camps we've done. And I mean all the videos. So it'll take you a year to digest. As far as discount codes, I'm not going through them. If you need them, they're in the show notes. Don't be lazy. I'm allergic to it. And go get yourself a big bull on public land. Go get your hands bloody. Go fill your freezer. Go make some memories. Have some adventure. Get tested. Hopefully you go through some emotional roller coasters, get down and out, but stay positive. Control your attitude and your effort 
Without further ado, this is Elk Shape Podcast. We are interviewing Dustin Coy. All right, Dustin Coy is on the line. We are talking today. We're both in Washington. Um, my dad met Dustin while camping in northeastern Washington. They hit it off. My dad said, dude, you, this guy's diehard. He's, he's hunted some places. Get him on. So um, all I know about you, Dustin, is you're a hardworking guy. And I think my dad said you have seven kids. <laughs> that is a fact. Are you serious, we, dude? We totally, yep. We just la- ha- uh, last month, June 23rd, had our seventh. And uh, it was a little girl. We named her Lydia June. And uh, she kind of was the cherry on top because we started out with two girls, then had four boys in the middle. And we just assumed the last one was going to be a boy. But. My wife was pleasantly surprised, and so was I, that we had a little girl. My goodness. So you guys set out to have that many kids, or it's just kind of one of those deals where we are Mormon, we are Catholic, or we just like babies. What is the deal here? Dude, we just like babies. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Lydia June, that is a gorgeous name. Who picked that out? That was kind of one, um, Lydia, my wife, really liked that name, and then uh, my my wife's mom, her middle name is June, and born in June, like, totally fit, so yeah. we went with that. That is a cool name. Um, not all little girls are, you know, the same. They're all a little different, but they do melt us big, tough hunters' hearts. I mean, the boys are boys, like, there are hunting buds, they need their ass whipped, we'll whip it. But those little girls, man, they are something else, something special. What a blessing. And you're going to have a whole tribe to take elk, tell, maybe take elk hunting here uh, down the road. So what's your oldest? So my oldest, um, Adrian, is 11, almost 12. She'll be 12 on the 30th of the, uh, July. So she's coming up. Um, and so then I have uh, Natalie. She's 10 already and then Preston is eight and then Byron is six and Wesley's four Ezra's two and then Lydia so it's almost 12 10 eight you know six four it's it just stair steps down (laughs) yeah man you guys are on a serious program so how long you been married uh we've been married 13 years okay and how old are you I'm 33. 33, seven kids. You're gr- you're a grown up, man, and you got some serious payroll to produce for these kids. What do you do for work? So I'm a finished carpenter. Um, been doing carpentry for the last 11 years. Just really love how you can be artistic with your work, and when you put stuff together, it, you know, and you see the final product, it's super gratifying to see what you know you can put together with your own hands. Awesome. So, What's your schedule like for work? Um, I usually work four tens. Um, keeps the weekends a, a little bit longer, able to do stuff around the house that way. Get all right. A little extra hunting time in. So yeah. So you kind of weekend warrior. How do you budget your time with all the hunting you like to do? Well, fortunately, I work for family right now, which allows me a little extra time off when I need it, you know, so it's been pretty flexible, but um, I try to get a lot of stuff done at home, you know, throughout the the bulk of the year so that, uh, you know, when it's time to go find some meat to fill the freezer that it's not a big ask from the family to go, you know, for a week to go elk hunting or, you know, carving out a week doesn't seem so unreasonable because everybody in the house appreciates and eats the the elk meat so yeah no doubt and that it you got mouths to feed bro you need to stack some elk up um so you live in washington um i've i've done almost 100 podcasts on this thing and we got a pretty cool audience i think there are a lot of like-minded guys but you could ask them all i've pretty much clown on washington state elk hunting like um i've killed a couple elk in this state but I mean, I I go other places. Have you had much luck in this state? I have been um, 
hunting elk in this state for about six years now. I was just a deer hunter before that. You know, that was kind of what we grew up doing. And uh, in the last six years, um, I have drawn one cow tag, but I've killed five out of the six years that I've hunted here, which has been the true spike units. So it's a little bit of kind of a low-odd number game with the uh, with the elk units that I've hunted. So I've been super blessed with meat. Okay, so when you when people hear true spike units, you are hunting a unit where, like, say, it could be a limited entry unit. So guys are there's only a finite number of branched bull tags, but you can slip in that unit as long as you shoot a true spike. True. Yep. Okay. Um, and then a true spike means legitimate, like no branches on either side, or what's the rule? So um, each each main beam's got to be a clean spike, no no point over one inch long, um, or it's an infraction. So uh, you got to be super careful when you're looking at at the elk. Make sure that those antlers are clean. Because, you know, nobody wants to get a fine. And I, I've seen it happen so many times. Really? The different hunters out there that uh, think that they're shooting a spike and they shoot a one by 2 And uh, they get get busted for it. Okay. And then there's other units where it's a spike, like you can say spike only, but it could be a 6 by one and that's legal, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. Man, see, that's just convoluted, like... Couple, I mean, I'm pumped for you to get your spikes, your true spikes. Kudos to you. But like when I drew my blues bull tag, it was it had spike only at the same time, and so I'm like 11 miles deep in the backcountry with a tag that took me 11 years to get, and up rolls these guys that are like bugling at all over the place, and they're like, "Oh yeah, we're just spike hunting." It's like, bro, seriously. So I've never liked the whole like, oh, we got a limited entry unit, but you can shoot some spikes. But that's, I digress. Um, You got some meat on the table, and then you recently decided that you're going to pursue archery elk, and you decided to go out of state. So tell us about that process and kind of what you're working towards. And I just thought of something. Are you... Are you shooting a compound as a finished carpenter, or are you like making those old school bows? Are you doing like a stick bow? Uh, yeah, so I've been, you know, building uh, building some longbows, okay. and I started out building self bows, like uh, you know, just take a stave and, and uh, use all hand tools and draw a knife it down and hand scrape. I've done all those bows, but I've built um, some laminated longbows, and one in particular that I uh, am going to take with me to Idaho and hunt. Um, I'll take my compound two as a backup bow in case uh, I, f- I feel like my opportunity is slipping away because of, you know, lack of uh, close-up opportunity. So Okay. But you, you decided that you're going to Idaho. That's a big decision uh, for out-of-state. Why did you choose Idaho and, and kind of what led you to, to pursue archery? Um, I've been doing the rifle hunting uh, with my dad for the last six years doing the the modern elk pumpkin you know hunt <laughs> where uh, it just you know it's, it's an opportunity for me it's not a trophy hunt and I was just looking for a secondary opportunity that was as close to home as possible there's no opportunity for a second elk tag here in Washington so neighboring state is Idaho and um I, I felt like that was probably my, my closest, best option. Um, and then just the fact that uh, hunting, hunting the elk in the rut just seemed to appeal to me a lot, you know, listening to different podcasts um, about hunting uh, elk in the rut. I haven't experienced it, so kind of got that, that fire to, uh, to go try it out. And then you hooked up with a buddy, so you have a partner in crime. Are you guys going to be able to scout before the season, or you're going in there blind? Um, we don't have any scouting plans yet. Um, 
so it's, it might be just kind of a blind mission, but he he did hunt that unit uh, by himself last year, and and did have some elk encounters. Um, just wasn't able to seal the deal on that hunt. So we'll we'll kind of go off of his past experiences a little bit of a guidance on our hunt. So okay, and then as far as um, when it's time for you guys to hit the road, like. When you got a partner, like you guys are, you know, going to be excited. You're hitting the road. You're driving down there. What dates did you pick? Because you got seven kids, man. You can't be gone all September, or can you? But like, what did you guys decide on for dates? So we're looking at the later half. Um, I'm I'm planning for like ten days. So the 13th through the 23rd, um, kind of that later half of September. It leaves me a little bit of time to possibly, you know, jump over for a weekend to go check it out early September, but kind of settled in on that 13th through the 23rd is like the take that week off and hunt, you know, those dates. So, so like, 10, if you looked at uh, like the moon phases of September this year and kind of where you guys are going to land? I haven't, um, but I kind of, I, I thought I heard sometime uh, around the like, 17th 18th something like that so i don't have it in front of me but i wanted to say it was really close to the date you said you were arriving like 13th 14th was going to be like the full moon and then your new moon obviously would be two weeks later so seven days after that would be september 21st ish for that last quarter but okay um you know the moon phase is what it is i don't get too caught up in it um there's somewhere on the mountain is an elk that's hot hot cow she's squirting yep. breeding it's got to go down dudes are gonna ball or brawl for rights to do that and uh should be a shouting match somewhere and then as far as tactics so you guys get to idaho we'll just say central idaho because that'll throw a curveball um what are you guys thinking for are you spiking are you base camping are you like literally mobile truck camping um, backpacking, bivouacking, um, riding horses. What are you guys doing? So we're just going to set up a base camp and uh, hunt out of camp. Um, I always have a one of the Seek Outside um, tarps in my pack because they're super light. You don't notice you even have it in there in trekking poles. So if I had to bivy out you know, overnight, that that's a possibility. Yes. And I always carry puffy layers too, so... You know, keep my air mattress, my tarp shelter in there. It, it gives me a little bit of options if if we feel like we're, you know, too far out to go back for the night and we're on elk. So gives us a little bit of an option that way. So when you have like, so I have the seek outside and it is light. It's ridiculous. And I will be carrying one in my pack too when I'm in Wyoming and with trekking poles. But will you pack a sleeping bag as well then or just puffy layers? If if I'm not planning on going out and staying out, I'd probably just have my puffy pants, puffy jacket, and and you know, just deal with the suck fest for the night. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but you know, I if I if I'm planning on it, I'll throw my bag in there. I don't have like a super heavy you know sleeping bag, so it'd just be a little bulk in my bag, and that's it. Okay, and then. If you guys do get into elk, will you guys set up a spike camp like near, like say you just find the elk three miles in or five miles in, are you the kind of guys to set a spike camp in or is it just no problem to hike in? Like basically what I'm asking is where's your fitness at right now? Um, I'm, I'm working on that, <laughs> but typically um, when I'm elk hunting, I'm just kind of a, I, I'm just keep moving until I find elk, even, you know, you know, start first light up the trail and keep walking to find elk. And, you know, I might do 10-mile loops in a day. Um, I've shot elk five miles from camp and, you know, two tripped them back. And that makes for a long, you know, day or night um, getting them out. But I'm kind of, you know, right in that. Like, I don't have a problem walking five miles out and five miles back in a day. Yeah, yeah, I think that's reasonable. It can get, it can grind you though a little bit uh, mm-hmm. if your first mile is fifteen hundred vertical feet. Um, 
you know, yeah. or less than a mile. And Idaho is steep, as you probably well aware, but this is your first time hunting elk in Idaho. Are you going to get yourself a wolf tag? I have it, yep. <laughs> Good man. That was yep, like a I... litmus test or a character test. Good job, you passed. Um, <laughs> that was actually the first tag I bought. Dude, I, I bought, like uh, you. I like I you. Bought my <laughs> yeah, I bought my hunting license and uh, my you know got my wolf tag the same day and then used the three-day fishing license that you get with it. We had just happened to be in Idaho for a 4-H event we were doing with the kids. And so we went fishing with our hunting license. You get that three-day fishing license along with it. So we used that too. Outstanding. Well, I think... You guys are going to be pretty dialed, but we got to get into. I got to double. I'm just going to use checks and balances because guys are listening to this podcast right now as they are headed to elk camp. Like you guys have been waiting for a year. You're listening to Dan and Dustin talk about hunts. Let's go over some stuff. Maybe you'll get these guys thinking about. Oh yeah, we should talk about that. But who is better at calling between you and your homeboy? Uh, I don't know. Um. I definitely get a lot of drive time, windshield time, and I always have my bugle tube in my passenger seat. I'm I I don't know, I try to stay humble, man, but I uh I've been practicing. <laughs> I I got a feeling you're good. So <laughs> what is your favorite go-to read and what tube are you using? Um I'm kind of running a mixed bag. So I got uh the Rocky Mountain um bugle tube i forget which one it is um it's i've had it for about four or five years now okay but then uh yeah i've been running the phelps uh gray amp yes um, reads i really like those me too i'm with you i like the maverick i like the gray those are probably my two favorites yeah Um, those are easy to control for me So we were talking offline, you really like some of the elk nut stuff, and for those listening, if you haven't caught my episode with Paul, it's back a few, but he basically goes over in detail, and I make him circle the wagons a couple of times on even more detail on his slow play, but what what is your general strategy for calling in elk, since this is like, this is your first September chasing elk with a bow, You've, you've seen what you've seen online and all that kind of stuff. What are you thinking? Yeah, I think um, looking for, you know, that hot cow, like you're saying, hot cows are going to be out there somewhere. So just kind of finding the bull that's hanging out with the hot cow and uh, just trying to find locating first, you know, just blowing the locating and and getting some sort of vocalization. Um, so that's kind of, you know, the first first start. I suppose. And then since there's two of us, you know, one shooter, one caller kind of deal. Um, if the elk are coming in, uh, you know, just hang tight. And if they seem like they're hanging up, you know, the caller just keep moving back and see if it works out. You know, I haven't, I, I played that situation in my mind before, but never, you know, in real life. So I'm just going to kind of see how it goes. Okay. And then, aggressiveness so you're a rifle guy in the past you've killed five spikes um probably haven't been quite you know 20 yards top pin shots which you'll probably get in idaho it's rushy down where you're going um how far will you be from your shooter because i imagine you're going to be caller first you know until there's some blood on the ground and then and i'm just my crystal ball so how close how far do you think you're going to need to be um, I don't know, man, probably start out about 30 yards away so you can kind of like signal to each other, but not be so far that you can't like, uh, you know, see each other in that first little, you know, first plays on elk. So we can kind of get to get to feel, you know, feel it out since we haven't archery elk hunted before together. Um, I think, you know, as far as bugling goes, like getting aggressive with the with the elk, you know, if they if we need to move in or, or cut some distance, I'm not um, I'm not too shy. I don't think to to make some big moves and run if we have to. 
Um, but yeah, pr- probably try to stay fairly close to begin with. Um, so we can kind of, yeah, figure it, figure it out. Dude, that's, what? that. I, I feel like that's important. Now, when you hunt with a buddy, have you and this guy hunted together before? We haven't. Okay, um, like no experience. That's what I thought you said. So, yep. you know, elk hunting with somebody really reveals a lot of who they really are. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, you can hunt with somebody who's all gung-ho, but their tail will be between their legs after three days when it gets hard. Or even day, like you said, a 10-day hunt, man. I say the back half of the hunt is really where you make your money because you've got five days in of really learning their pattern, their behavior, the country. You really start tightening the noose on your quarry. But that doesn't matter if you got a negative Nancy with me or or somebody who's just, you know, not on your level physically or even like mentally just staying positive. So have you guys talked much uh, offline as far as figuring out each other's strengths and weaknesses and what you bring to the table? No, that's a conversation that we need to have probably. Um, Like I kind of, you know, just we've been friends for a long time, so I kind of, you know, have a good sense of like, character but as far as like doing you know hard things and 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 you know sucking it up when it really sucks i haven't had to deal with that with him necessarily so yeah it's a good good conversation to kind of figure out where where we're at yeah and you seem pretty chill pretty laid back so go with the flow kind of guy but somebody's got to be a quarterback when i think when you're hunting with a team or even just two guys um who's got more elk experience um he's he's done the the archery elk hunting for the last few years so as far as like that season that hunt he's done that um so i would say yeah he's probably got a little bit more experience in that in that court you know yeah and he's been in that country so you probably have to kind of kind of go off where you know check out his haunches first and where he thinks you guys need to be but be able to you know, get set up and get your calls going. And um, by the time you get there, there's no doubt about it. By the 13th, bulls are going to have some cows rounded up. Like they're herded up for sure. By then, you're going to cat. You're going to get into some bugling, especially if there's good elk numbers down there, which I hope there is. And then once you kind of figure out where to go first, um, I'll be really interested to hear from you when you get back on how you guys approach it for hunting out of a base camp because. I'm not super sold on base camp hunting. Uh, I'm usually pretty mobile, but I also usually don't leave elk to go find elk. You know what I mean? But did, did he leave any cameras out or anything in this area? No, he didn't. Okay. But um, he where he camped, he said that he had more elk around camp than he did when he went out away from camp in this particular area so that's kind of i think why we're choosing to go base camp style okay i got you and then what was the hunting pressure like um he didn't really say that there's too many guys uh where he was hunting last time um i don't remember him saying anything like it was overcrowded or anything like that but i imagine um because where he ended up hunting was more timbered but the tops of the hills were, you know, pretty open. Um, that probably wolf pressure pushed him down would be my guess. Yeah. Did he get into wolves down there? Yeah. He said uh, he he had seen a wolf and heard him several times. Um, but the, the wolf they saw, he, you know, had his bow and it was like 200 yards. Right. Okay. Yeah, those little buggers will make it. Uh, will will keep you on your toes, and they're they're there, man. So um, as far as uh, bears, are you a bear spray? Carry a side piece. What are you thinking for Idaho? Uh, I typically just carry a, a a pistol with me. Okay, what kind of pistol? Yeah. I have a Glock thirty four. It's a nine millimeter. Okay. Yeah, like full size Glock. Yeah. And then as far as circling back to Washington, dude, you've had to experience the ultimate hunting pressure in Washington, especially modern firearm. Oh, um, yeah. 
so a little bit of hunting pressure you're, is not going to phase you at all. I guarantee it. But um, talk to us about your evolution of like getting into archery. I kind of wanted to back up because, dude, you've built your own bows. That's really cool. You obviously are quite the the craftsman, being a finished carpenter. So, when did you like pull the trigger? Did you buy a compound first, or did you start making your own bows? Since I was a little kid, we'd been shooting those fiberglass bows, you know, in the backyard, just flinging arrows when it, you know, when Dad would bring them out or whatever. And then um, we always just had bows and arrows around. Uh, we we had done a few shoots, uh, like 3D shoots, like traditional 3D shoots um, around here in Washington. There's a, a big one that uh has become like family tradition over in moses lake every year it's called the rock shoot um i met uh some good people at the rock shoot um one of which was my friend abe henderson um and now he's a guide up in alaska and i just did a caribou hunt with him not to get off subject but oh we'll get uh, into that so yeah don't forget we're going to circle back to that yeah so um as far as archery goes it's kind of just been a lifelong hobby that we've always just done, you know, as a family. So my brother does archery. I do archery. Like my kids are into it. My dad's into it. So, but we've always, uh, my dad had compounds. He shot an old Martin, um, links back in the day for a long time. Um, he had that bow and then, uh, started building, uh, recurves, you know, out of the Bingham projects, uh, catalog ordered a recurve kit and built a, a recurve and so I got interested and then got interested in more like the primitive style bows kind of like what Clay Hayes does you know yeah. builds the the self bows so I built a few of those to begin with and then sort of evolved my bow building into building like custom long bows um, the one that I made just recently was a it's a three-piece takedown long bow um, really, you know, beautiful, like uh, bird's eye maple in the limb laminations and the riser. And it's got uh, just like a golden toffee color to it with all the little bird's eye markings in it. It's pretty, pretty bow. So I just really appreciate the wood, you know, how pretty it is and how each piece of wood can be super unique. And then it becoming a functional piece of art that you can go out and harvest something with. So did you get a chance to stick an animal with that thing yet? So, yeah, three years ago, um, I was, I had an archery tag for mule deer. And on my way to work, I uh, came across some, some deer crossing. We were working on this cabin up uh, Blewett Pass area in Washington, just outside of Wenatchee, and um, ended up spotting a, a group of deer crossing the road ahead of me. And there just happened to be a three-by-three buck in the group, and that's a legal buck in that area. So I um, like got out of my truck, snuck up on the buck, and first shot, shot over his over his shoulders. And I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he takes off, uh, runs about 15 yards and stops to try to figure me out what, a, you know, what I was, what I was doing. And that allowed me to get in between a, him and the tree that uh, was just further up the hill. So I like I ran up about ten yards and cut some distance, and uh, he was hard quarter hard quarter away at about twenty eight yards. I drew back, shot right over his hip, and angled the arrow right up through the right up through the engine block. So he ran about forty yards and tipped over. Boom! You uh, you recovered well, my friend. And <laughs> do you make your own arrows too? I have um, currently no with like hunting arrows. I don't mess with the inconsistency of the wood shafts. Like if they get wet, they can warp. And I just really kind of settled on shooting carbons out of my out of my longbow. Um, I do like making wood arrows though. Sometimes it's fun, but uh, I'm a carbon guy when it comes to shooting consistency. Okay, well, let's talk about your carbon setup because, man, a lot of you guys, you primitive guys, like to shoot Lincoln logs, and I don't blame you. you got to have something heavy hitting. What do you got in the front end? What's your arrow weigh, and what are you using for the back end? So I um, got a set of 
uh, grizzly sticks. So they're tapered carbon shaft, and overall arrow weight is 650 grains. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and that's with, like, a, it's got a brass insert. I forget how much that weighs, but 200-grain um, broadhead. Um, it's like their Maasai broadhead, so it's it's got, like, a little bit of a radius to it and a single bevel cut. Um, and those things, they, they're, they you know, they're tapered, so they're designed for pass-throughs, and they're designed to break the bone with that heavy FOC. I, uh... I've really enjoyed shooting those arrows and I've, I've missed and hit rocks with the field points and those arrow shafts are incredibly strong. Really? Yeah. I, it's hard to break one of those grizzly stick arrows. Wow. Okay, man. So is that what you're going to use on elk? Yeah, that's my plan is to shoot the grizzly sticks on elk this year. Um, my, my longbow, I don't know if I said this already, it's uh, 60 pounds at 28 inches and it's, it's got a little, you know, it's got enough poundage behind it to, to shoot those arrows out pretty quick. Well, when I think about somebody archery elk hunting who's killed elk with a rifle, that's how I started out. I killed my first elk with a rifle and then switched to a bow. There's a couple things that come to mind, and I want to hear your take. All right, the first question is, like, how do you find elk? The second question is, is how do you close the deal on elk? How do you get in tight to get your shot? Okay. And then my last question is going to be like, what is your recovery protocol? Um, you know, it's different than obviously shooting with a rifle and they usually drop in their tracks. So how are you guys going to get into elk? Um, probably start out, you know, just out in the evening, like before we go out and try to locate some elk, you know, try to see if we can hear them first. Um, I, in the unit that I've hunted with rifle, I've, I've done a lot of like, you know, hiking that land. So I kind of know that area really well. As far as this new area, I'm going to be looking for, you know, trails and sign and water. Um, and then, you know, good, good grazing areas. So I can kind of figure out like where they're, where they're going, you know, to eat and water in the evenings and stuff, and then try to find their bedding areas during the day. So looking for elk beds and stuff like that. So that we can kind of start start um, putting those waypoints on Onyx, you know, so we can kind of figure out like, okay, we found this here, this here, you know, what's the what's the plan, you know, because typically the area that I've hunted, um, the elk, they they go down um, to water and feed in the night, and then they come up the mountain to to bed in the shade during the day. So kind of that early morning transition time has been when I killed most of the elk that I've killed. Um, so trying to try, trying to find them, I guess, in that transition time, because um, cows are going to drag the bulls along with them wherever they go if they're you know hot cows. Oh, definitely. So, All right. So they're moving in transition. How do you get to inside? Probably thirty yards for a guy who's shooting primitive. How are you going to get in tight? So, yeah, the wind, I mean, wind is key because you bump an elk, they, they drag 10 along with them, you know, sometimes it's, it's tough. But the, just using terrain features, you know, for hunting in timber, it, it might be a little easier to move. Um, but then using the, the calling to our advantage, I think, will help us out a lot. Um, since, since I haven't done that yet, I'm not sure how I'm you know, how that's all going to play out, but that's, you know, I've been a lot, uh, or I've been doing a lot more spot and stock in the past. So trying to make, make it at least within a hundred yards before, you know, starting to really call, um, might be the way we really approach it. The thing you can't really, you can't screw up is you can't screw up being too loud on elk. Like too many guys are sneaking around too quiet on elk. That drives me nuts. You got to be pretty aggressive, especially I think if you want to get in tight. Um, are you the type of guy that would be willing to sit wallows? Let's just say it's a hot September and it's getting dry. Are you the kind of guy that's going to sit water, or are you going to rather just work bedding areas and 
do midday madness, so to speak. Yeah, I might be willing to sit wallows, you know, because if I'm going, 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 it's hot, you know, there's likely I, I'll probably, you know, start feeling it after a while um, that sitting a wallow wouldn't be, you know, such a bad idea. I'm, you know, I'm thinking it could be a productive option, you know, if we're, if we're finding active use, you know, in trails and fresh, you know, sign on the ground, it might be worth sitting on a wallow. Oh, definitely. Well, let's get into gear before we get too carried away. So you seem like a pretty meticulous kind of guy. Let's start with the ground up. What are you going to wear for boots on this hunt? So I've been running the Kenetrek hard scrabbles. I've got those guys um, broken in pretty well now. <laughs> it took me a little while. Uh, but yeah, I love those boots. They, uh, they're they incredible. Like, um waterproofness I've, I've had zero leaks on those things i keep them keep them greased up too so that the, the leather stays supple and they won't dry out and crack and separate from the rand what so, do you use yeah. to grease your boots the kenetrex um, waterproofing stuff that they have that's the only thing i'll put on those Dude, um, that's that's what you got to do because beeswax and some other goodies that they don't list but it doesn't have that stuff that'll your typical grease will like actually deteriorate the leather and those boots specifically that's what i rock in september and they will hold up as long as you do your due diligence and uh, i've never had a leak ever with those boots whatsoever and they are made in italy folks always think that they're not but they are um okay so now we got your boots what are you wearing for a layering system like you mentioned puffies and all that stuff. You can say brand names. I don't care. But like, what what do you, what's your go to stuff? Yeah, so I've been I've been using the Sitka Gear stuff. I really like like their layering system. Um, the only the only cheat I uh, I wear the First Light Arable um, boxers. I really love those things. I will. <laughs> it's gross, but I'll wear the same pair for the whole week. Uh, and they don't smell bad at all. It's incredible the micro, <laughs> how the the um, merino wool is like magic. So I run, yeah, run the Aerolite or the Aero wool boxers. Um, I usually don't wear like long underwear or anything like that. I tend to run a little hot, so I like to stay as cool as possible. I wear the core light hoodie uh, that Sitka makes. Um, then I have, you know, the mountain pants or the ascent pants, depending on weather. Um, probably in September, I'll just wear the ascent pants. Do those um, those ascent pants do not have knee pads, or do they? Um, they don't have knee pads. That's what I, I thought. Believe. Yeah, I don't yeah. think they do, but the mountain ones do. Yep. The Timberlines yep. do, and then I think even the. The Apex pants, depending on which ones you can get, you can get knee pads or not, or take them out. Yeah, yep, those do too. Okay. Um, yeah, so um, the core hoodie, uh, I like that. I like having the hood um, keep the sun off my neck, or if the bugs are kind of bad, like pulling that hood up, kind of save your neck from getting eaten up by bugs. Um, that's kind of one of my favorite favorite shirts that i i wear um and then i have i have like the down windstopper hoodie or not hoodie um the windstopper uh puffy jacket uh just it's a little bit heavier but usually if i'm if i'm you know sweating and up on a ridge and the wind starts blowing i can get cold quick and i like having kind of a thicker puffy jacket because i know like if it if it gets real crappy, it's still it's gonna keep me warm no matter what. Um, so I I kind of run the heavier puffy jacket that they have. So I kind of run extremes like the real lightweight shirts, but then if I need the heavy jacket, I got the heavy jacket, and I'll take it off and on, and you know just just to stay comfortable. As I'm I the need same it. way, man. Like I'll wear layers and layers, but nothing super <clears throat> um, bulky or heavy. Until I get to my puffy, but I don't run hot. Like I actually run cold, pretty bad. So I'm, I always have a big puffy in every pack I've always 
almost any time of the year, which sounds ridiculous, but I, I do. I run cold and I just need to put some fat on, but it's the truth. And <laughs> that leads me to the all-encompassing backpack question and how do you, and what, where do you put things in your backpack? So I like to have a dry bag, even though I have the um, Seek Outside Broadwing, which is like a waterproof fabric bag. I like to be able to pull that dry bag out with all my like clothing like encompassed in it for the just in case, like just in case I need to ditch it, just in case it's like raining, you know, real hard or, uh, you know, I leave a zipper open, you know, I like that super lightweight, like sil nylon dry bag material, like the sea to summit. I'll carry like a, a, and I always pack my clothes into that thing. So I keep those inside and just compress it really good and, and snap that buckle on top. And it kind of keeps everything like tight and small in the bag. So it's not like, you know, you're digging for a, you know, cliff bar or whatever in the bottom of your bag and you're like trying to find it, you know, throughout your puffy and your gloves and your, you know, extra pair of socks or whatever. So I like to just kind of keep it neat and tidy. Hydration system. Are you a guy who uses like a camelback or are you a Nalgene guy, all the above? What are you doing to do for water? I carry, uh, one of those single wall stainless clean canteens mm-hmm. um, and a Sawyer uh, water filter. And so I just fill that thing up at the beginning of the day. And if I need to get water, I'll, you know, refill it, you know, if I have to. Uh, that little Sawyer mini comes in pretty dang handy when, uh, when you're running low on water. Um, and then with the single wall uh, stainless uh, water bottle. I've made coffee in that thing before, you know, just cause you, you, it's not insulated. You can heat it up with your, you know, stove. And, uh, even on the mountaintop, you know, you just heat up your, your water bottle full of water, drop one of those via packets in there and you got hot coffee on the mountaintop. Uh, that's a must. What do you do for coffee? I, I, I really like those via packets, the Starbucks via packets, but, um, just because they're so convenient, easy to find. I did buy some uh, coffee from uh, Tony uh, with Dark Timber, and I'm going to run some of his vapor vapor packs, which are basically the same thing, like an instant coffee, just add water. Yeah. So just going to try those out this year. Man, those Via packs are like, they pack a punch. Yeah, yeah. For for real. It only takes one packet, and I'm good to go. But um, all right, so we covered water. We got your pack system. You run a seek outside backup tarp. That's awesome. And then trekking poles. Are you a carbon or aluminum guy? I got carbon poles. Yep. And you haven't broke them at all? No, I actually had some black diamond aluminum poles that I broke. Uh, one just um, hiking in on a hunt, uh, and yeah, snapped it off. I, I must have dinged it on a rock and just created a weak spot, and then it just snapped off like mid pole. Just put too much weight on it slipping and just kink <laughs> in half so yeah i ran the carbons um after that and i haven't had any problems since are you so, a guy that will use an inreach or just kind of rely on when you get cell phone service yeah i've just been using the cell phone um I haven't yeah i haven't invested in inreach so um, what is your wife's expectations of communication when she has seven kids to to rally while you're gone for 10 days how does that work she um, will appreciate when I can get cell, cell service and at least send her a text, you know, just saying everything's good, give her a little update. Um, she says a lot of prayers while I'm gone because <laughs> a lot of times, you know, I don't get great cell service and so it's you know, it's hard to communicate a little bit. Um, but she, like, is very, like, uh, good about not worrying too much um especially what you know when i'm with somebody else unless i say that i'm going to call her at a specific time or like give her some specifics and and i always tell her you know like where i'm going so that she has a good idea of where i'm at at all times but yeah no i need to get an in reach it would make life more simple and probably less stressful for her at times you know so i just can, got one i found them on amazon about a month ago maybe two months ago now for like 2.99 the mini 
Oh, yeah. So I picked it up and then I just went to activate it the other day, but they like wanted me to start my subscription now. So I have a little reminder in my phone to activate that towards the, uh, well, basically, if you're listening to this podcast now, but about a week ago, right before I take off to Wyoming, I'm going to activate it and then um, make sure that um, do a couple practice runs with my wife's phone, just make sure that those are getting out to her and I'll probably get whatever plan they have that's unlimited for at least like a month or two, whatever you can do. I don't need a full year script or anything like that, but I don't want to be limited to 10 texts, you know, or whatever, but right. it should be good. And then as far as um, the last thing I wanted to bug you before you got to bounce is to get into this do-it-yourself Alaska business. Tell us kind of how it started and, and give us the rundown. Yeah, so uh, my good buddy Abe Henderson, um, him and I met at that traditional archery shoot in Moses Lake. They were living in Ephrata, Washington, um, and I live in you know the Wenatchee area. And so we were only like 45 minutes away. I never met until that, that moment, but then we instantly hit it off because I saw this dude walking around with his wife and five kids. And at that time, I had five kids, so we were like, Oh, hey, how's it going? You know, introduced ourselves, got talking hunting and talked hunting and talked hunting. <laughs> so we developed a good friendship. Um, and he's like real good, like backpack hunter. Um, it's got his system real dialed in. He's now a guide in Alaska um, working for Rogue Expeditions um, up there. I think they're based out of Anchorage. And uh, so now he lives up there doing that. Um, so I had always talked about, you know, Alaska would be so cool to do this. And he had some prior guiding experience up there um, with uh, a different guide service up there and had some stories to tell me about his adventures up there. So I was just like, you know, infatuated with uh, learning more about Alaska and had, um, yeah. So when he left uh, to move up to Alaska to go back to guide, he had been mulling this idea of how do I help people back in Washington? You know, my buddies from home, how do I help these guys figure out that it's not that hard if you want to go do your dream hunt in Alaska, like here, you know, give them the information, like help them out. Like, how do I do this? And so he developed his, um, his guides to these specific hunts in Alaska and helping do all the logistics and, like the good reminders of experiences that he's, you know, had in kind of like a module type form online. You know, you buy the subscription to the guide and all the information's there for you. So oh, you he's start, the uh, Alaska, Alaska DIY guy? Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, as he's, yeah, as he's kind of developed this, um, he started, uh, he started, you know, thinking about like all the different hunts he wanted to do. And I kept telling him like, hey, there's this real cool hunt I talked to another friend here in Wenatchee about. He used to live up in Juneau and go out on this hunt in Adak, uh, Alaska, which is way out in the Aleutians, and uh, it's a caribou hunt. So Abe kind of like looked into it for a little while, and then finally I got this phone call just this last um, August, and he's like, hey, would you be interested at all in this hunt? I'm setting it up. You know, I got food provided. Like, all you need to do is get up here and get your tags, and we'll do this caribou hunt. So I was like, uh, dude, that's, I'm right in the middle of remodeling my house. Like, I could, I came up with like, you know, a dozen excuses of why I couldn't go do it. He's like, well, you, re- you should really think about it. So I like, kind of like brought it up to my wife at the dinner table type thing, you know, like, hey, what do you think about this? You know, so she was like, you know what? I think you should do it. Like, I think you should, you should go and do that. That sounds like a really cool opportunity, which I was not expecting her to say, uh, since we're like tearing out, you know, flooring in our house and had like half done drywall everywhere. She was like, (laughs) you should, you should go do it. And so I called Abe back. Oh no, I sent him a text. He was in the field. He was on a caribou hunt himself for himself. And I sent him a text, and he was on his inReach, and, like, he texted me back. He's like, that's awesome. So we started planning it out. And uh, um, come October, I, I fly up to Anchorage, hang out with them uh, at, at their rental there. We get all set up, get ready to go. 
flight ADAC, uh, and we were there for seven days. And uh, I I killed a bull on day four, and um, I ended up killing it with my rifle. I took my bow. I had every intention of hunting my with my bow on ADAC for caribou, but the uh, the bow started taking or showing you know its age <laughs> that I hadn't put new finish on it in a few years and it started taking on some water and darkening the wood in some spots and I didn't want to risk breaking it so I just packed it away and I had I brought my rifle too so ended up using the rifle on my caribou this year so give us the history of Adak Island because I have a buddy who went there and from what I remember it's like almost like an abandoned island with military I don't know like World War II stuff so give us a little background on that island yeah, so um, they yeah built it up during World War II um, when there was all the activity with uh, Japan taking over um, an island close by. They they had to like fortify kind of like our you know western front there, and so they they built up the island to house about I think it's like six to eight thousand troops. Um, so there's like all these little like subdivisions that are all like this, you know, cookie cutter houses everywhere and, uh, military bases and, um, like shopping malls and gymnasiums and, and, and it was really built up like as a city, you know, a little city. And, uh, they had a port, you know, where the big boats and stuff would come in and, uh, they decommissioned it back in the early nineties, uh, you know, basically, like we're done here. You know, no more, no more military base. So people like filtered out. You know, and now there's like less than a hundred residents there year wow. round. Yeah, yeah. And they they all like uh, wear different hats. You know, they're like the the same person that's like checking your tickets at the airport might be like the mail lady or like, <laughs> you know, the the waste treatment plant person or you know. There's uh there's one fishing uh, fish processor down there at the at the docks. Um, so a lot of them that live there work there too. So, uh, but now yeah, it's like a ghost town. There's buildings that have just basically like blown over uh, because of the moisture gets into the buildings because they haven't had heat on them in years, and so they, they just kind of like swell and then fall apart, and the wind just blows them sideways. It's it's insane. So can you compare that size of the island? Like, is that island, what would it compare to, just to kind of give me a comparison, like how much country is available to you guys to hunt? So the town, the town's very, it's pretty small, you know. You probably have like maybe six, ten square miles, something like that, which would kind of encompass town area. Um, and then the island's like 240 square miles. So there's there is a lot of of territory out that way and it's it's uh got no trees on it anywhere uh it's like all grasslands and and like rocky mountains and uh it's not like forgiving country like that country is a pretty rough country uh it's kind of like getting above tree line in some of that rocky rugged ridge tops um that you can find in the Cascades Mountains. Okay, yeah. So there's you're exposed to weather, and weather is like the game changer there. How did you guys navigate the island? Were you on foot? Did you get like a boat, a raft, or did you guys just hike, get dropped off? Like, what did you do? So we went in with like seven days worth of stuff on our backs, uh, including an alpaca raft. A PDF or a PF personal flotation device, PFD <laughs> paddles. Like we we brought the works. We we just left the kitchen sink at home. That was about it. We had like I would guess our pounds are like or our packs were about sixty pounds when we went in, and uh, we were on foot. We hiked in. Um, we we only hiked in like I think four miles uh, from from the trailhead uh, where we'd set up the first part of the trip and we hunted there um, until I got my caribou and then we took it back to town 
we uh, rented a house there in town as kind of like home base, like leave our extra stuff that we didn't want to take with us and, and have a, a place to like, you know, when you arrive on ADAC to like, kind of like, okay, settle in and then, you know, pack up stuff at before we head back to, to Anchorage. So we had that house there available, especially too, if, if stuff got too bad, you know, we could go back to the house if we, if we needed to. Did you guys have any decent weather? Um, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, it was, it was insane. It was, uh, like the, the first day we went out, it was blowing like 40 knots, which I think, uh, translated in miles per hour is around 50 miles an hour. Uh, no, thank you. Yeah. That was like the average wind speed that day. And then it was raining and, uh, just, we walked straight into that storm. It was in our face the whole entire time. Uh, for the first like hike out where you know where we initially set up camp, so and then every day we'd wake up and it would it would just pick up where it left off the day before. You know, it was windy and rainy, and you get these like little breaks in the rain where it's just windy, and the wind might slow down <laughs> a few miles an hour. But uh, yeah, it was it was seven days in rain gear. Yeah, that's on, that could be ADAC. miserable. I mean, that's going to test how tough you guys are. How did Abe do? Abe's a mountain goat, man. That guy just came out of sheep season. And uh, the the guy that filmed our hunt, uh, Micah, a uh, friend of ours, he, um, he was hiking mountain, like uh, climbing mountains with uh, the Romp group. was like a project that he was working on. And so those guys have been climbing mountains all summer. I've been swinging a hammer. And so that that trip was a little rough on me. I was having to keep up. I was sucking wind a little bit. So that was it was good though. It was good to push me. Like And when you're out. filming in that kind of conditions, I mean I feel sorry for Micah. That is just brutal on your equipment. It's so hard to keep your lens clear and your gear. I mean, water and electronics don't mix. No. No, yeah, he um, he he did really awesome at, at you know maintaining his gear. I don't think he had too many uh, technical difficulties. I think we had some water affect the mic uh, for a little while on his camera, like his on-camera microphone was having a little bit of issue, but uh, we didn't lose any any gear in that in that hunt. So that was good. So where where can we find this film? Is it on YouTube or something? Yeah, so it's on uh, Abe's YouTube channel, uh, Alaska DIY, and it's called ADAC, The Winds of Homecoming. And uh, yeah, it's a really, it's a really cool film. I love rewatching it. The kids love rewatching it. Just reliving that adventure. Uh, it's it's kind of fun to have that have that available to look at that hunt again. Well, I'll leave a, a link in the show notes for that film. You're on Instagram. What's your Instagram handle? My Instagram handle is cascades underscore hunting. Okay. So I'll look you up and, and get that plugged. And man, I don't know how you do it, but I'm really impl- impressed. Seven kids, solid family man, blue collar, loves to go hunting. I mean, you are you're the guys that we want on this podcast, you, the real people that are, are doing it, do it themselves on public land. So. Make sure you shoot me a text when you get out of Idaho and let me know how it went, man. Yeah, hopefully I can send you a picture of a bull. <laughs> oh, you will. You will for sure. And, um, you know, I think a lot of guys listening right now are headed to Elk Camp. And, you know, we went on to Alaska, but we covered your gear and we kind of covered quarterbacking and calling and, and being on the same page with your partner or your squad and we talked about, you know, just what it takes to work together as a team. So if you guys listening, I want to end this show with just I'm going to make Dustin give you guys some advice too cuz he's killed some elk, but I would say, you know what, if you're going down with a squad, two to four guys and you're going to a new area, get out there, divide and conquer. Everybody go a different direction for the first day or two and get a pulse on where the elk are at, where's the best sign, where are you hearing the bugles at, and then meet back at the truck and then make your plan, work together as a team. And if you have three guys, put one guy out as shooter and get two callers back. Just get an elk on the ground and be selfless. 
You know what I mean? It's always a team deal if you're hunting in teams. And then if you're like a me and you're a wolf and you hunt solo, man, you just make sure you're safe. Make sure you have an inReach or a cell phone service or somebody who knows your plan and then pack with you a, a decent first aid kit with like some super glue, um, some sort of that's for when you cut yourself. I've done that. Um, and, and some way to clot, like some sort of clotting mechanism and maybe like a mini tourniquet or just something to stop bleeding. And, you know, there's there's a lot of information on the web, but just safety first and hit it hard. Don't waste any time. Don't squander a minute. And you can sleep in October. How about you, man? You got any last little advice for anyone heading out, listening to this on the way to elk camp? One thing uh, I'd just like to encourage other guys to do is to, um, you know, just take their kids out and show them, show them the woods and help them to build the same passion that they got uh, for themselves, you know, because, like, my kids are, are constantly asking, like, hey, when are we going to go out again? So just, uh, yeah, just encourage, I just want to encourage everybody to take their kids out hunting. 100%. It's important. Well, dude, I appreciate you coming on. I know you're busy. You probably got a hammer to go swing or some arrows to go fling or you got to go help with dinner or put kids to bed. But um, I hope to meet you in person. I know my dad said that you were just a hell of a good guy. So good luck and maybe your grizzly sticks. I hope that they fly true and you get what you're looking for, man. Thanks, man. Awesome. Appreciate you coming on. It was great talking to you. All right. Take care, bro. Hey elk hunters, Corey Jacobson here from elk101.com and if you're like me, you're probably thinking about elk hunting every day of the year and working continually to maximize your chances for success this fall. Well, Dan and I have created a special opportunity for you that I feel will absolutely take you to the next level in elk hunting regardless of your previous experience. Three years ago, I created the University of Elk Hunting online course with one goal in mind to make you a more successful elk hunter. The UEH online course contains 45 chapters of detailed elk hunting information organized into 17 modules and covering every imaginable elk hunting topic, from planning and scouting to calling tactics and tracking and every topic in between. The University of Elk Hunting online course is the most comprehensive and complete resource available to elk hunters. And for listeners of the Elk Shape podcast, Dan and I have teamed up to offer you a 20% discount when you sign up. Simply go to elk101.com, click the link to the online course, and use the code ELKSHAPE, all one word, when you check out. You owe it to yourself to invest in the single most lethal weapon that you take to the elk woods each fall. Invest in you. Sign up for the University of Elk Hunting online course and elevate your elk hunting success today. Thank you.